0: Listeners and Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Two Years, a song by Cincinnati singer-songwriter Rachel Maxson. Rachel is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about her and let you hear the rest of that song. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everyone. Steve, are you a baseball fan? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm a huge baseball fan. <laughs> no, you are. Have you ever heard of Ed Delahunty? I've never heard of that. De- oh, I can't wait to tell you about this because back in the 19th century, when baseball was young, Ed Delahanty was the Babe Ruth of his century. Oh. Yeah, they called him that. He was inducted into Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame in 1945. But what a career he had. He, he was born in Cleveland. He was a powerhouse slugger with a 16-year career um, from 1888 to 1903. During that span, he recorded a batting average of 346. And if you're not a baseball fan and don't know what that means, you just need to know this. That's the fifth best average of all time.
0: Wow, that's pretty impressive.
1: Delahanty even reached 400 in three of those years. He was one of the first sluggers that could draw crowds to the ballpark on his name alone. Yeah,
0: 400 is unheard
1: of uh, for baseball. That's crazy. And he also has the unique distinction of being the only player to have won the batting title in both the National League and the American League. That was an achievement he met playing for the Philadelphia Phillies and the Washington Senators. He was also one of the first players to hit four home runs in a single game and at one point was the highest paid player in all of baseball. But sadly, folks who bring up Ed Delahanty are much more likely to want to discuss his mysterious death. Delahante died in 1903 at the age of 35, his remains having spent a week trapped beneath Niagara Falls. And it's still up for debate over whether his end was suicide or a terrible accident. So let me tell you a little about Ed. He was born October 30th, 1867, the day before Halloween in Cleveland, Ohio. And his parents, Bridget and James, they were Irish immigrants who had immigrated to the United States just two years earlier. Ed became the eldest of six brothers, all raised in a good old-fashioned Cleveland Irish neighborhood near the city's Central High School. The family lived on Phelps Street, where Dad James worked a variety of blue-collar jobs and Mom Bridget operated a boarding house to get away from that busy, congested home, the boys played baseball a lot in nearby vacant lots. And they hung out a lot at the firehouse down the street, especially in the evening when the department's horses were brought out for what was called the 8 o'clock call. As a matter of fact, when the baseball scout finally came calling for Ed... For that six foot one, 175 pound sensation they'd been hearing about, people pointed him toward the firehouse, and Ed was there. Now, Ed was 19, so technically he couldn't be called a runaway, but he sort of was, because he didn't go home that night. He literally followed the scout all the way to Mansfield, 75 miles away, and signed up with the semi pro team there. When his parents found out why he didn't come home for supper, Mrs. Delahanty told Mr. Delahanty to go down to Mansfield and fetch him back. He didn't even say goodbye, for heaven's sake. But Mr. Delahanty said Ed had only ever wanted to play baseball, and they should let him give it a try. After a season in the minor leagues, Ed made it to the show. He was picked up by the Philadelphia Phillies and given a then-record bonus of $1,900. It's worth noting that the Delahanty brothers were coming of age at a time when a lot of Irish kids saw baseball as their path to the American dream. Young Irishmen dominated the sport and they had a reputation for a daring and spontaneous style of play that the crowd just loved. Ed wouldn't be the only one in the family to hear baseball's call. Four of his brothers eventually went from Cleveland's Sandlots to the major leagues. Ed, Frank, Jim, Joe, and Tom Delahunty became the biggest brother act in the history of the sport with Ed, the family's superstar. Ed had a personality to match his skill. He was flamboyant cocking his cap to the side of his head, always wearing stiff collars and smoking better cigars and chewing better tobacco than anyone else in the room. Combined with his very good looks and unparalleled ability to hammer the ball, he became a crowd favorite. The pitcher Crazy Schmidt was once quoted saying, when you pitch to Delahanty, you just want to shut your eyes, say a prayer, and chuck the ball. The Lord only knows what will happen after that. The first 14 years of Ed's career were spent in Philadelphia, with the exception of one uh, unforgettable season in his hometown, Playing with the Cleveland Infants. Infants? (laughs) I don't recall hearing that name before. I heard of the Cleveland Spiders, but not the Infants. The Infants. That's a horrible name. Yeah, it is. Horrible name. So thank goodness for his sake he didn't stay with them. And then in 1902, he switched to the new American League and the Washington Senators. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of them. Mm -hmm. He led the league in batting, doubles, and home runs. But oh, how he hated Washington. The town was just too quiet and boring for a man who wanted to drink, gamble, and go to horse races. He bore it for a year and was thrilled when he was thrown a lifeline. He was going to be traded to the New York Giants for the 1903 season. He couldn't have been happier. Now, I won't get into all the details here because non-baseball fans won't follow, but long story short, There had been a big feud between the National League and the American League, and they found a way to call a truce. It happened at what they called the Cincinnati Peace Conference. Unfortunately for Ed, the truce involved canceling all trades and sending league jumpers back to their old teams, which meant Ed was going to have to stay in Washington. Moreover, Ed was told to return the $4,000 advance he'd been given by the Giants, but had already frittered it away during a trip to New Orleans. Delahanty was on the verge of personal and financial ruin. He was beginning the season in debt, and to his mind, he was being banished to a wasteland he didn't want to be in. Adding to his stress, his wife, Noreen, was ill and then a back injury had him riding the Pines for part of the season and then being forced to play right field instead of the left field he had always played. His depression over all of this grew, and his drinking, already legendary, became harder and more frequent. As the 1903 season wore on, he still managed to compile a batting average of three hundred thirty three but his team was mired in the basement of the league. Even more reason for Ed to be miserable. The last straw came at the end of June that year when the Senators began a lengthy road trip. They were playing in Cleveland when Delahanty learned that another player who had made plans to play for the New York Giants as Ed had was being allowed to go to New York after all, despite the truce that had forced Ed to stay in Washington. Big Ed railed at the injustice of it, at one point so despondent that he brandished a knife and chased a teammate through the hotel where they were staying. On June 25, during one of those games against Cleveland, a disgruntled Ed promptly left the ballpark early and disappeared into the city's bars to drown his sorrows. Nobody knew it then, but that game in Cleveland turned out to be his last. Mm. He pulled it together long enough to join the team for the train ride to Detroit and the next series against the Tigers. But Ed was benched for going AWOL in Cleveland. And so he went AWOL a second time, this time leaving Detroit without telling anyone. At 6 p.m. on July two. He climbed aboard Michigan Central Train Number 6, bound for New York. Delahanty imbibed heavily on the train. The conductor counted at least five whiskeys. And he proved to be more than the train staff could handle. Now, nobody knew who he was on that train. He was just the man who flashed a straight razor at a passenger, the guy who was smoking a cigar in non-smoking areas, the guy who smashed a glass case that contained a fire axe, the guy who reached into a sleeping berth and attempted to pull a woman out by her ankles. Although in that last act, some believed he was probably just really disoriented and thought he was trying to enter what he thought was his own compartment. Either way, the conductor had enough. He stopped the train at the bridge in Bridgeburg, Ontario, on the Canadian side. That's Fort Erie, as we know it today. And there, he ordered the drunken man off, right at the edge of the slender trestle above the Niagara River, and within sight of the lights of Buffalo. Dullehanty wasn't even given his baggage.
0: Okay, I can get kicking him off the train, but if you're in the sights of the big city...
1: Oh, yeah, there? and on, in the wrong country. Right. I mean, if they had just taken him across and dropped him off at the other end, at least he would have been back in America. Exactly. And he was warned when he was being let off. He's, he said, you're in Canada, so you'd better behave. And to that he reportedly said, I don't care whether I'm in Canada or dead. Hmm. It was just after midnight, July 3rd. The train continued across the International Railway Bridge, and after it was gone, Delahanty began his own trip across the 3,600-foot-long bridge. But this was a train bridge, not a pedestrian bridge. Sam Kingston, the night watchman on the bridge, saw him attempting to cross and ran after him, ordering him to return to shore. Besides, a boat was approaching and the bridge's draw had already opened to make mm-hmm. room for it. Delahanty was undeterred. He tried to push past the guard and a scuffle ensued. The guard fell to the ground and watched as Delahanty sprinted for the other side of the bridge, swallowed by the darkness. The guard couldn't see what happened in the end. He could only hear the splash as Delahanty plunged into the water 25 feet below. Now there was no chance of a rescue. The dark and treacherous river was moving inexorably toward the mighty Niagara Falls, 20 miles downstream. Everything happened so fast, the train crew quickly learned that the man that they had put off at the bridge had plummeted into the water. They found his belongings on board, there was a valise containing a season pass to the Washington Baseball Park made out in the name of Ed Delahanty, and a suitcase that contained clothing and a pair of baseball shoes with Ed's name on them. In 1903, baseball stars were known to their teams and sports fans. They weren't necessarily stars to the general public. The name Ed Delahanty didn't mean anything to the train crew. But the clothes he left behind had the name of a tailor inside the coat. The superintendent of the Pullman Car Company wrote to the tailor in Washington, was given Ed's address, then wrote to Ed's wife in Washington to tell her of the incident on the train and that he believed her husband was drowned off the bridge the night in question. It took a week for the river to give up Ed's body, his naked and mangled remains were pulled from beneath the Horseshoe Falls. He was missing. Oh, he went right over the falls. Wow. Yeah, 20 he went. miles. Whew. Yep. He was missing a leg, too. He, it was believed to have been torn off by the propeller of the Maid of the Mist. The tourist boat that has been taking visitors to the spray of the falls for more than a century now. I I, I was on it. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't even realize it was going that long ago. Anyway, Ed's family traveled to Niagara to identify Ed, and they began their own investigation of his death. And a century-long debate of what happened in the final moment of Ed's life began. Some argued suicide. Suicide. Prior to leaving on that final road trip with the Senators, Ed had taken out an accident insurance policy on himself, naming his little daughter Florence as the beneficiary. And in Cleveland, before the trip to Detroit, he wrote his wife saying he hoped the train would jump the tracks and kill him. Hmm. Delahanty's mother and one of his brothers even decided to accompany him to Detroit. But Ed's brother, Frank, and his brother-in-law, E.J. McGuire, told a reporter there was no way Ed would have committed suicide. They and others thought it was a tragic accident, that a belligerent and disoriented Delahanty was simply sprinting for the American side of the bridge, not realizing the bridge had been opened and there was no surface ahead of him in the dark. Suicide or accident The family argued that Ed couldn't have done anything to warrant being evicted from the train in the middle of the night with no belongings, no transportation, not even given to the custody of police. Not to mention that the crew knew he was drunk and set him at the foot of a trestle. Ultimately, a court agreed. Delahunty's widow won a lawsuit against the railroad for their handling of the incident. The lawsuit only had to resolve the question of whether putting Ed off the train in his condition was proper. Nobody had to determine whether what happened after that was suicide or accident.
0: All right, well, this is the part of the podcast where we bring on board our armchair detective.
1: Well, for tonight's Armchair Detective, we welcome Dwayne Lawrence from Copley Township. Hi, Dwayne. Hey, Paula. How you doing? I'm doing great. This is Dwayne's second time for us. We had to have him back because he was a really good armchair detective on the case of Ron Tammen, right? Yes. Yes.
2: A college student disappeared.
1: Yeah. By Mm -hmm. the end, you had us convinced that he might have been a KGB operative. KGB (laughs) operative. Yes. And you were so convincing. We went with it. (laughs) So listen, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I'm
2: Dwayne Lawrence. I do maintenance at Akron Public Schools and I'm a big Ohio Mysteries fan.
1: Well, let's just jump right into the big question because the mystery is, was it suicide or was it just a a tragic accident? Uh,
2: Could it be that, could it be both? I mean, he was obviously emotionally unstable, uh, financially ruined at the time in the situation where... He could have, whether he jumped or he was in the position, he put himself in the position for the accident to happen. I uh, was struck with this idea, this whole thing, where they didn't want players to jump between leagues, and he was stuck in the middle of that. And then I know in your podcast you talked about the money that that it was owed that he lost in new orleans well when i was digging some more i mean it was it was basically an advance from the new york team he was going to go to for four thousand dollars and allegedly he blew it all on horse racing in new orleans and lost it and then they wanted him to return it so between that he had been hurt injured he was obviously struggling and in, in decline somewhat as a baseball player and i think he was just an emotionally unstable person at the time I mean, what do you think
1: when you went through it? it? It just seemed like. Clearly, he was having the worst year of his life. His family followed him to Detroit. His mother and his brother went with him to Detroit for that final series. And I got to think that they went with him because they were concerned about his mental state and they thought that they could be, you know, supervise him or be his protectors. And when he got away from them by jumping on the train to go to New York, Mm -hmm. you know, he lost that layer of protection.
2: He was going to try to go jump leagues anyways, was what I read, which I thought was interesting. He's just like, I'm going for it.
1: Right so, right, well, he certainly seemed stubborn and and strong headed, and when he found out that this other player was allowed to do it mm-hmm. anyway, I could totally see that being consistent with his personality you know i 'm going to go work this out on my own then
2: no, it was reported too that uh, he had pulled out some sort of accident insurance policy on himself that's right, so to me, if you are in a position if you're at that point where you 're pulling out the accident insurance policy. I I had read something that he had left a note or to his wife. He did.
1: He did. Um, he talked about- Is that about why the family followed him? Because they knew he was in a bad place? Right, right. Yeah. I think all of that is really legitimate, a really legitimate argument for mm-hmm. suicide. I will say, I can argue just as strongly for accident. Yeah. Because that train dropped him off in Canada- Yeah. On the Canadian side of a bridge that went to America.
2: By Canadian law, he, would, he was supposed to be turned over to a constable.
1: Right. And they and they and didn't. They, didn't. <laughs> they were just like good luck. But I'm picturing his state of mind. He's on this trestle. He's, drunk. He's looking at America. America's right there, and the, he can see the lights of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And the train drops him off, leaves. He sees the train going across the trestle. I could see, especially in an inebriated state. Your logic is, well, I'm going to follow the train because America's on the other side. When that night watchman came out and kind of wrestled with him and he threw him to the ground, he's got to sprint now to get away from somebody. So now he's not just walking across the bridge. He's running to the other side, and the bridge is open. Mm-hmm. Maybe he wasn't listening to that watchman saying, hey, the bridge is open. Right. And it's dark, and it's, you know, it's 1903 dark. I mean, how illuminated... Could that area, we're not talking about a lot of light pollution back right. then. And, you know, I think there's a really good argument that he just ran right off that bridge and didn't even realize uh,
2: Definitely, it. definitely. But, and absolutely right. That's what I'm saying. Like he was, he was even put himself in that position. So he was drunk. I've, I've been really drunk in the past in my early thirties, late twenties and emotionally worked up and something could just happen so quickly. The fact that he takes off, I'm going to show you guys, I'm going anyway, and then he runs off the edge of the bridge. That's certainly something too. But like I said, either way, he was unstable at the time. Yeah. And having a bad, having a bad day, whether he jumped or fell, he was, he was, he was on a, he was on a runaway train, as you could say. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there you go. I
1: like that. I like that. Um, so, Speaking of runaway train, what do you think about the behavior of this railroad and the way they handled it?
2: I, I don't know. You know, all we can do is go off what was reported for a very sad incident. They said that the, the, the night watchman, uh, Sam Kingston, now the plane dealer had something where he said that he saw uh, Big Ed standing at, on the, looking out at the water on the bridge looking like he was going to jump, and claimed that he ran up and grabbed him and drug him back to the middle of the bridge. And that's when, Sam, that's when Ed
1: broke free and took off running. And then he heard the splash, heard him go in. That's really interesting. I did not read that particular line in a story. So that is, that's telling. Yeah. That's very telling.
2: Yeah. and that's, uh, they always. And then they were talking about the money. And I had a theory on that. I, they were saying that he potentially had $1,500 in diamonds and cash on him, and it wasn't in his luggage when they went and searched it. And I don't know who, or but it was reported that he had it. I don't know who said that or who thought that. But they were saying that that could be part of the mystery. Was he robbed or anything like that? But I know when they found his body, he... Obviously, had been very maimed by the Maid of the Mist, potentially, and yeah. all his clothes were missing. It's very easily all that cash of diamonds could have floated to the bottom of the water. It so. certainly could have. Yeah. It certainly
1: could have. Have you been to Niagara Falls? I have. I've been on the Maid of the Mist. Yeah, I have too. Isn't it kind of chilling to think of you know this <laughs> yeah. Hall of Famer at the bottom of the falls there yeah. waiting for his body to be released? Mm-hmm. I have to share this. I... I'm assuming this is true because a tour guide told us this. When you're back in the 70s, we took a trolley ride around. We used to go every year, actually. And she said that the Maid of the Mist has a person that stays at the bottom of the boat with a harpoon. And every trip they make, this person's job is to look look for bodies under the water because they're so common. Well, like I said, this was back in the 70s. Okay. But I... I wouldn't be surprised if they're still doing it because how else do you get the bodies? The bodies become trapped by the pressure of the That's water. That's what I was wondering. Is it kind of like a circular thing happening? Exactly, yeah. exactly. They get trapped by those rocks, and I could totally see Steve. Oh,
0: I'm sorry. I was going to ask a question when you were done. Ask it. Harpoon? What are he doing with a harpoon? <laughs> are they going to shoot it down and through the body and then bring it up?
1: Yeah, they need to shoot the harpoon into those rocks and into the pressure of that water, grab the meat and be and have enough force <laughs> to yank it out from under the under the water. Yeah, I. Um, so I I don't know if that's true. I don't. It it makes sense. It makes logical sense, especially since so many people die every year. Yeah, you know, over yeah. the falls, um, they've got to have a mechanism for doing that. Yeah,
2: for fishing them out, definitely.
1: But, yeah. I was thinking, too, he was famous, but he must have only been famous in baseball circles because nobody recognized him. And even when the train staff found his name, apparently they didn't know who he was because they they had to find his tailor, whose name was in his suit, contact the tailor, and then write the wife to say, we think your husband's dead. Mm -hmm. And I found that really interesting because Ed Delahante's name was in headlines a lot. Mm -hmm. But back in in 1903, baseball must have still been, I don't know, just so early. They they must not have been superstars. They must have been well known to their teams and their communities. Right.
2: There could be a lot of uh, famous baseball players in the baseball circles, yeah, but maybe not household names.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that, that must have been the case.
2: I saw that he's buried in Cleveland. I thought that was interesting. He is Yeah, in Cleveland with his brothers and sisters, and they
1: brought him back yeah. home. That was uh, that was another little element that I thought was really interesting. Finding about the Irish boys growing up yeah. and seeing <laughs> baseball as their American dream and dominating that sport in those years. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, when you mention baseball, I don't think Irish, but back in the eighteen hundreds, it, it was they they really dominated that sport. They had a tenacity, I guess, is what they were saying. I, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. yeah. Probably way more aggressive than, you know, mm. they had been playing baseball up to that time. And mm-hmm. and the picture of him, uh, you know, at that firehouse and the scout shows up and says, hey, we can put you on a team." Yeah. And he's like, let's go now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody go tell my mother I'm not coming Didn't home. Didn't even say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Different times.
1: Oh, well, he certainly fulfilled his dream. It's just a shame it ended that way.
2: Yeah. Tragic is the, the main thing. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Dwayne thanks so much for being with us. thanks for having me you bet
0: that's it for tonight camper stop by our website ohio mysteries.com for photos links news clippings and more for this and every ohio mystery episode
1: and that brings us to tonight's featured ohio musical artist Rachel Maxen is a Cincinnati native who got her start fronting a funk rock band in Athens, Ohio, then went on to pursue projects while living in places like New Orleans and Los Angeles. I can see from her Facebook page she's been performing on the high seas for some time on those cruise ships, but she'll be back in the Queen City soon enough. If you want to keep up with her, find her on Facebook and Instagram. At the start of
0: the podcast, we played a clip of two years. So here's the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.